Say, are you wearing a fitness tracker right now? Maybe you have a health monitoring smartwatch or a ring or a piece of clothing or other device that gives you data on your heart rate, heart rhythm, respiratory rate, body temperature, glucose levels, and a whole lot more. Wearable technology has come a long way from being a novelty. These wearables are now being used to help monitor patients to forestall problems. They can help people take a more active role in their health, plus the trove of data they collect can help medical researchers. Coming up in this episode of The Pursuit of Precision, two leaders in the field of wearable technology will talk about how these devices support health and wellness, as well as their challenges to personalized healthcare. We are so pleased that two experts are with us. This is going to be a great conversation. Dr. Michael Maniachi is with us. He's an associate professor of medicine and a hospitalist with Mayo Florida in Jacksonville. Dr. Maniachi is also the medical director for Mayo's Advanced Care at Home program, which uses wearable devices to monitor patients remotely. Also with us, Dr. Ryan McGinnis. He is a professor and assistant director in the College of Engineering and Mathematical Sciences at the University of Vermont. His research agenda pairs innovations in wearable and mobile technologies with his expertise in biomedical signal processing, machine learning, biomechanics, and computational dynamics. He's currently developing new digital therapeutics for improving the mobility and functional independence of individuals living with MS and Parkinson's disease, optimizing orthopedic rehabilitation outcomes, and addressing mental health problems in children and young adults. Wow. Good to have you both with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Dr. McGinnis, let's begin with you. I was doing a little research, and the first biosensors evidently were used in 1956 to detect blood and oxygen levels through electrodes. So let's talk about how far medical wearables have come since then. What's the scope of their use today? Yeah, it's a really fantastic question. I think maybe one of the ways that you could think about the biggest changes in medical wearables is in their form factor. So likely those devices in the 1950s were big and clunky and hard to wear. And today they're tiny band-aid size sensors that you can adhere to your skin and wear around with you every day, just like you're wearing uh, like a band-aid. <laughs> wearables and mobile technology are part of this move toward digital medicine that we've been talking a lot about. I wonder here, Dr. Maniachi, how will these devices have a direct impact perhaps on diagnosing, prevention, monitoring, and maybe treatment of disease? Sure. Well, they do all of those things, and it really depends on how you use them, what tier of care you're giving, and how much you own the patient longitudinally. Different devices for different means of collecting data. When people are at their sickest and they're in a hospital at home program like my own, there are more intensive devices to monitor more regularly different types of data, heart rate, blood pressure, breathing rate. You want to collect this data, you can collect it continuously, you can collect it ad hoc as you want to, and then you act upon that data. As you look at more longitudinal ownership of patients in remote patient monitoring programs over weeks to months, that might be asynchronous data. The patient can push a button when they feel ill, or you can push a button at any time, collect the data point, process that, decide if you want to change treatment plan, or just check up on somebody. So there is more intense monitoring when you're at your sickest, and then you back off because you don't want to have intensive monitoring and all this data flowing at all times of the day, 
for months at a time because it's not good for the patient. Who's going to act upon it? What's we going to do with that data? It's all about the why. And that's when it gets to when patients ask, do I need to wear this device? Why are you doing this? And that's what you have to answer for them. Oh, I'm trying to help you because you'd be in the hospital right now. You need intense monitoring or you're at risk of getting sicker over the next couple of weeks. We just want to take a snapshot a few times or have the ability to for you to click in and tell us what's going on. Oh, we want to check you three months from now. So this is something that'll come in the mail. You put it on then and click it. Or this is a non-invasive device that it just feeds to your wristwatch. You'll wear it all the time. When you want to send us data, you push a button. So it all gets back to the why and how you're trying to t- treat patients. Dr. McGinnis, it sounds as though wearable technology doctors can maybe detect a major health event beforehand and even maybe detect disease early on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's an emerging area of wearables and having this sort of always on continuous monitoring can allow you to do that. Some of our recent work around panic attacks demonstrates that using data from an Apple Watch allows us to get a better sense of if someone's at high risk of experiencing a panic attack in the next day, which could allow you to intervene early and potentially prevent it. That is fascinating. I want you to dive a little deeper because when I read about your panic attack research, there's always a story behind a study. So I am curious to know what was the spark behind this? So my wife and my research partner, Dr. Ellen McGinnis, is a clinical psychologist who experienced panic attacks. And during her graduate training, she worked with one of her professors to do some basic biofeedback. So her professor was like, hey, why don't you try taking your heart rate while you're having your panic attack? From that sort of emerged this idea that maybe you can provide real-time heart rate-based biofeedback as a way of addressing panic attacks. And so uh, what started as a conversation on a way to the Boston Science Museum one weekend turned into a research project that we did uh, exploring how to develop a digital therapeutic for panic attacks and ultimately a company that we started called Panic Mechanic. And in getting this technology out to the market and trying it with patients who were trying to do real-time heart rate-based biofeedback for their panic attacks, we learned that people don't actually want to do that. (laughs) They don't want to take their heart rate recordings in the middle of their panic attack. You know, in hindsight, that may have been kind of obvious. They were able to do it, but it wasn't something they were excited about. Really what they wanted was a way to better understand when they were at risk of experiencing attack and finding a way to prevent it. And so that led us down this line of inquiry around what data can we collect easily that would allow us to predict somebody's likelihood of having a panic attack. And we ran this large national study in about 100 people. So I guess maybe not large, it's sort of a pilot study <laughs> that allowed us to explore that question a little bit more. And so we looked at data from Apple Watches, we looked at patient-reported measures of their mood and their stress levels. And we found that patient-reported mood and community mood derived from some fancy analysis of tweets in your community. So Twitter data allowed us to predict if somebody was likely to experience a panic attack. And also information about their heart rate as, a, as sampled from their Apple Watch and the ambient noise that surrounded them on a given day, both were able to predict if they were likely to experience a panic attack the next day. So really interesting markers that are relatively easy to collect that could provide this really critical information on an impairing mental health problem. Going back to Twitter for just a second, because obviously I'm in the news business, I'm going to assume yeah. that if there was a, a major event that happened in someone's neighborhood that was upsetting, that's what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly right. We paired with some really cool computational scientists on our campus um, in the Vermont Center for Complex Systems that developed a tool called the Hedonometer, which analyzes the tweets for sentiment and is able to score them, sort of give them a happiness score, so to speak. So they have this great website that you can check out on hedonometer.org. But you know, you see like spikes of happiness on Christmas, for example. You see negative spikes of happiness on days of, of really bad world events. 
But if you were to look at on a state level, the happiness score for a given day, that was predictive of if somebody was likely to experience a panic attack the next day. And interestingly, it was independent of their, their self-rated mood. So there's sort of different constructs, a person's self-rated mood and the sort of community level mood as, as defined by the hedonometer. Interesting. Wow. So Dr. Maniachi, as we talk about digital health, I mean, there's a, a lot to dive into here, obviously, with, with wearables and what Dr. McGinnis is doing is, is fascinating. Uh, you deal with remote patient monitoring, which you, you touched on a little bit. How does that work in your world as a hospitalist with Mayo specifically? Sure. So this is usually during acute event or the post-acute phase, meaning somebody gets sick and either goes to a hospital or we admit them to the hospital at home. We monitor them at a high level in that program. And then afterwards, in that recovery phase for the next 15, 20, 30 days, there's monitoring with less invasive, usually one to two devices, where we can collect data to see if there's any change in their status or remission of their old status or a new status that would cause them to be ill again and come back to the hospital a second time or need elevated medical care. There's several examples of this where we have patients in the hospital with heart failure. Their heart doesn't work as well. They get fluid built up in their lungs. They need to come in for IV diuretics and so on and so forth. We usually take those people home now, treat them at home with our home hospital program. But usually in the next 30 days, they have a high likelihood of getting sick again. So I had a patient that went out, celebrated a family event about 15 days after they got discharged from our program. And we picked up in their data monitoring stream, their heart rate going up, their breathing rate going up. It prompted our nurse practitioner to call in and say, hey, we noticed a change in your data that's different from the last 15 days. Are you okay? Well, they explained they went out, they had some salty meals at Cracker Barrel and did not feel well the next morning, thought they could take an extra pill. We said, let's send a paramedic. We ended up starting an IV, doing IV medications there, treating them, getting the fluid off, preventing them from coming back to emergency room, coming back to the hospital. But that's the type of marker that we needed to prompt us to give that treatment without monitoring. We wouldn't have known. And the patient said, I wouldn't have called you and bothered you because I thought I could get over it. Often those patients come in four or five days later to the emergency room because they're so sick because they waited. I am going to assume that COVID might have nudged some of the implementation of this along, right? It did. Absolutely. People were not as familiar with the technology and not as comfortable with remote monitoring, connecting by video, feeding data to folks. COVID made it a lot easier because it's what we had to do. So all of a sudden, you know, my 78-year-old grandfather in this room and our 78-year-old grandmother in this room, they were used to using Zoom. They were used to putting a blood pressure cuff off on their own and setting data off. Of course, we had to teach everybody, but that comfort level is there out of necessity. And that kind of jump-started the new phase of home hospital and monitoring where we have a lot of these smart devices, both synchronous and asynchronous data, and then the video connection where we can treat people across time zones from one location as opposed to just next door. And patients seem pretty happy with the results? Yes. This is something we underestimated. It was the providers that had the most trouble letting their patients go in a physical sense. I mean, in the home, the patients love the experience. They love the freedom and control of being at home, being on their own terms. They have to invite you in as a guest in their house. They have to give up their data to you for you to process. You have to build a care plan around their data, which is very much individualized. You're just not another 10th person through the clinic or 10th person on a hospital ward. You're there in their home as a guest, and you're able to build a care plan with them, see how they live, see fall hazards, tripping hazards, how they eat, and build this care plan together. That freedom, control, and interaction, really, they enjoy that and gives a great experience as opposed to being in a clinic, 
driving 100 miles to a hospital, being stuck someplace in a creaky bed with lights and isolation for family. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes hospitals. They just are there out of necessity. All of a sudden, if we can do this in the home setting, patients enjoy that much more. Dr. Megan, this, this, this almost sounds too easy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it is the opportunities that exist because of remote patient monitoring technologies really are endless and are, and are really great motivators for why for the sort of technology development work that we do. You know, we spend a lot of our time, I think that the challenge is really around, we spend a lot of our time addressing this issue of, of how much data you have and how do you make sense of all of it. So some of our work that's funded by NIH and, and that has support from corporate partners like Metadata is around trying to build pipelines that allow us to identify digital biomarkers and phenotypes from these longitudinal data streams that are capturing the signals that are embedded in that data while reducing and removing all of the noise that comes along with it. And that's one of the areas that I think is really exciting about you know, remote patient monitoring is, is how do we build the computational tools that allow us to make the most sense out of this data and leverage it in a way that actually makes people you know, healthier. I want to get back for just a moment here because I've been thinking about you outlined a really interesting scenario here, Dr. Maniachi, with patients and rightfully so. No one likes hospitals, right? As you say, they're noisy. You can get infections. I mean, it's just not a great place to recuperate. But I'm wondering, things can and they do go south fast, right, in, in certain situations with patients. And if you send a person home, even if, even if they're remotely monitored, a family member or the partner of a patient is kind of left trying to deal with something serious. Might this put a bit of an undue burden on already burdened caregivers? So it can if it's not done correctly. And the key with these hospital at home or other types of programs is not the monitoring, it's the care execution. So you can slap on a device to anybody, but what are you going to do the minute you get some data back that says that person's in trouble? Do you have paramedics? Do you have traveling nurses? Can you activate a system to deliver medications, care teams, pharmacy labs, things to a household very quickly and treat that? And you never want to put the patient themselves or the family in any burden. We don't want them to become a nurse, a paramedic, any of this sort. We do like them getting involved with the care plan because they learn about their loved one. They learn what to do. And if the patient was in the hospital, they would have to take care of them once they went home anyway, because 80% of patients get discharged from hospitals. Don't go to skilled nursing. Don't go anywhere else. They go home. So taking a few days to actually learn some of the ropes, have kind of a soft handoff, that's important. But if we need aides, we need nurses, we need people in the home, that system has to be set up. You can't have every remote patient monitoring isn't set up to actually treat high acuity patients or activate care in the home. So the key, you have to have both things if you're going to have sick hospital level patients in the home. Do you have a, anything to add to this, Dr. McGinnis? I 100% agree on all of that. <laughs> I think the thing that remote patient monitoring can add in those in those situations is the objective data, right? Like so often, if you have a, a sick family member or a sick loved one at home, you know, you're making guesses about what's happening with them. You don't know when to call the hospital, when to call the providers. And these tools and these technologies can, can give some objective information that can allow you to make those decisions and inform those decisions more clearly. And I think that's really powerful. And I'm not saying that we're necessarily there yet. I think it's an emerging area, but it's, you know, that data and the, the information that it can provide, I think it really can help folks manage those challenging situations. That's exactly right. It's about the right amount of data on the right patient at the right time in the right situation. You don't want to do too much. You don't want to do too little. You want to gather the right data stream for the, the acuity that the patient's at. You turn it up when they're sicker, you turn it down when they're less ill, and that's how you do it correctly. Boy, we are talking about oceans of patient data, right? 
So I'm wondering, you know, when a technological solution is launched, there are positive outcomes, but they're often accompanied by unpredictable malfunctions and other challenges. I would think one of the biggest challenges would be, in this respect, data breaches. Am I right about that, Dr. McGinnis? Yeah, so it's it's certainly an issue. I actually may not be the right person to address this challenge because you know, in the context of research problems, oftentimes we have data stored in a nice HIPAA compliant server somewhere, but we're not dealing with like real time patient data that are ma- you're making treatment decisions based on. So I may, I may kick it over to my uh, podcast uh, happy partner to, here. Happy to talk. About <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, it is a concern. We talk from the minute we recruit somebody in home hospital in one of our programs, we say, hey, the data is there. We encrypt it in your home on that side. We encrypt it or unencrypt it at our side. The data is only housed and everything that goes into the medical record is in our medical record that is in our EHR that's in our house. Nothing is kept anywhere else besides the medical record. We use Epic and that is through Mayo servers. So medical data is out there someplace else sitting on a server for people to crack into. And we also have a little bit of relief that the data we're collecting is a bunch of ones and zeros, usually on a blood pressure, a heart rate, some of this data that it is not, you have diabetes and here's your insurance and this is the payer and this is your middle name. It's actually data on biometric data so that heaven forbid somebody was able to crack into this because we always say there's a possibility they would maybe get a bunch of scrambled data or blood pressures and heart rates. What they did with that, hard to tell. Theoretically, they could do something, but it gives the patient at least a bit of relief saying, hey, this is not truly protected stuff. This is stuff that is a little more ambiguous for any cyber stalker. So then maybe Dr. McGinnis, another challenge could be this, data reliability. Might that be a challenge? It's a huge issue, data reliability and quality, making sure that you're getting good quality data. I think part of that comes down to validating the technologies that you're using to collect those data, but then also making sure that you're if you have devices that should be placed in a particular location on the body and should be adhered in a certain way, making sure that the patients and the participants are trained appropriately to do that and having ways to analyze your data that can inform some information, can inform you and your analyses uh, in terms of the reliability and the quality of that data are all really important aspects. You know, you hit a very important problem that, that sort of needs to be addressed. Yeah, we see this in the hospital all the time. We took a sample for a week, and out of 300 hospital patients, there were over 200,000 alarms on data being filled in. Less than 100 of those were actually something we actually had to do something about. So 199,000 of them were just fake, you know, somebody moving around, somebody getting up, going to the bathroom, and it picked up not, you know, not a pulse oximetry trace or something. It's just how you mine this data and use AI in the future to grab the right pieces so that we're focusing on the right patients is key because as Dr. McGinnis said, there's so many devices available. There's so much data that can be taken. You can do a lot of good or it can be a lot of noise. It's up to medicine to decide how do we do that and do it properly and not put that weight on humans in general because it's too much. I would think too, device reliability would be an issue perhaps because there's so many devices out there, you know, which ones work. (laughs) Very true. They're all different. They all monitor differently. And often people come to us with devices before they come to us with problems. And that's the, I'm like, I have to, what's a problem in the device that actually fits the problem, solves it and is reliable. That's what I look for. I have to monitor blood pressure at home. Show me the best device out there that can read a blood pressure, which is, can be validated against the hospital blood pressure study. But seven people come with different things and they'll say, Hey, I can tell you how big your eyes are. Well, that's wonderful, but I don't have a problem that it solves. So thank you for your device, but I'll pass and talk to you later when you have something I can use. 
Yeah, maybe just to follow up on that too. You know, I think having needs-based solutions is really critical in this space. Couldn't agree with that more. The Digital Medicine Society is this great organization, nonprofit organization that has a framework called the V3 framework for evaluating these types of technologies that has um, sort of multi-level validation to show that the devices are measuring the things that they say they should. And then also they're working towards sort of user testing as part of that. So not just are the devices measuring what they say they should, but can they be used in the way that they're marketed, right? Both by the patients and the providers. That level of validation is really critical for deploying these technologies in a way that actually can can help inform care and help you know patients be healthier. You mentioned needs-based solutions, and I'd like you to talk a little bit here, Dr. McGinnis, about your most recent work that looks at um, chest-based wearables that look at postural sway and fall risk, especially among patients who have Parkinson's and MS. That's fascinating. This is a years-long project we've been working on. I'm trying to effectively model fall risk in, in folks that have balance and mobility impairments. It's work that's funded by NIH, and we have this, as I mentioned before, this great partnership with a, a company called Metadata. But the idea here is, is basically, can we capture objective information about how people are engaging in balance-challenging activities every day and use that to detect when they may be at increased risk for falls? And it's for particular patients with MS is the population that we're focusing on now because uh, MS is sort of unique in that symptoms fluctuate pretty considerably from one hour to the next within a day, certainly from one day to the next. But current assessment techniques are really only deployed at a you know once every six month neurologist visit. There's sort of this mismatch between what's happening with your symptoms and when clinically the symptoms are assessed. So we're hoping that we can, by monitoring folks using these types of technologies, we can get a better sense of when somebody may be at increased risk for falls and then deploy a preventative intervention before that fall occurs. Could this be used in other areas like, say, elderly individuals? I mean, you've seen smartwatches or other at-home monitoring services say, hey, we can we can monitor your loved one, and if they fall, we'll call you. But there's a lot of false warnings that go out. Can this technology be used for older adults? That's certainly the hope. The idea is that we can identify these sort of biomarkers or phenotypes of fall risk before that fall occurs. And certainly the idea is that in any, you can do that in any population that's at increased risk for falls. We focused on chest data in particular here, or chest wearable sensor data in particular, because there is a sort of growing acceptance of the first really clinical deployed wearable, a Holter monitor. Those Holter monitors have gotten smaller and smaller over the years. And so now they're like a single patch that you can wear on your chest. And all of those Holter monitor type devices, which are measuring single lead electrocardiography, ECG, they also typically have accelerometers in them, which you can then assess postural sway from. They're sort of these devices that are already available at scale and, and used clinically that have this you know, extra data that no one has really tapped into before. And it may allow us to get a better sense of who may be at risk for falling. I'm curious, are you both wearing a wearable right now? <laughs> yes, right here. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassingly, I am not. <laughs> Forgot my aura ring at home today, charging. <laughs> Just so sort of you wear a ring. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I do. I presume that you both started to wear wearables because you're involved in this area of medicine, right, doctor? Yes. I mean, I tried out all the devices before I tried them out on patients. I want to know what's the experience because if I don't like it, God knows my 80 year old at home who has arthritis is not going to like it either. So I tried out all the medical devices. But I think naturally, we've just grown accustomed to smartwatches, smartphones, the non-invasive devices, which will drive the future of this. If you can do it with a patch or some sort of device at home, great. But if you can do it in the future with an Apple Watch, an Oracle Ring, 
the camera on your stereo or on your television or your laptop with a Siri or an Alexa device listening in the home. I think the future of medicine is collecting data through multiple streams, putting that data together, speaker picks up a cough, the watch picks up the high heart rate, starts an algorithm start to put this together, and then probably links it to non-medical data, which can be found in the, you know, the shopping world. So say my heart failure patient, as opposed to catching them now after they've had an attack, maybe in the years up to the attack, I pick up a faster heart rate on their watch, their camera or Wi-Fi picks them up moving less in the house. Amazon picks them up buying larger pairs of pants and compression socks. And we put all these streams of data together, swollen legs, bigger belly, higher heart rate. This person might have heart failure, diabetes, and it instigates a check with a primary care physician to actually diagnose this and treat it years ahead of time. So we prevent the kidney failure, the heart failure from ever happening. That's really the power of using both medical and non-medical data in the future for good is use everything out there that sends you a bunch of ads now and use that for good and actually put it together in the medical data and catch people years ahead of time, treat them properly. That sounds cool, but <laughs> I wonder if this a little too big brotherish for some folks. It can be. And again, you have to opt into it. I would also advocate for the patients, how about using data as currency? Meaning you can collect my data. If you happen to catch something on me, great. If you don't, and I'm a healthy person, fine. But when the next COVID comes or something else comes out and you use my data to make a vaccine, to make a pill, I get that for free or for a reduced price because you used three years of my data. So patients must advocate and we must advocate for data as currency. If everybody's going to collect this data, you know, the patient gets something out of it. Because again, we're helping the better good and them in the long run, they should get something out of it. Dr. McGinnis? This is the first time I've heard about the idea of, of mining your Amazon shopping history as a potential means of diagnosis, which I, I love that. I think it's super creative. I think that the opinions around data sharing, particularly when it comes to health, really are starting to shift. You know, I think with COVID, more and more people were okay with sort of the surveillance level type monitoring with the idea that it ultimately could keep them healthier. If I had a crystal ball, I suspect my prediction is that as our population continues to age, people are more and more okay sharing information through technology. I think we'll, we'll see, continue to see, you know, opinion shift on this where people are going to be okay sharing that data, both to benefit themselves and to benefit society. But as you say, there should be an opt-out. I mean, I wonder if many people don't even know what they're agreeing to right now with consent. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a very fair point. Agreed completely. I think people have to be informed of what their data, who's going to use it, how's it going to help them, how's it going to benefit others, and who else will it benefit, and what are they collecting? And that all has to be spelled out, and people have to agree to that. And if they have trouble understanding, we have an obligation to make sure that they get the information they need. Say, so, going back to hospital at home, because I really do need to ask you this question, because of COVID, as you stay, the hospital at home model really took off. And there were these pandemic era waivers that will remain in place until at least, I believe it's the end of 2024. Do you anticipate any policy changes that will allow programs like yours to remain in place permanently? Yes. Would you ever give up Amazon and just go back to the department stores after doing something digitally? I think the experience is too good and we're showing very high quality, equal if not better safety outcomes, lower readmission rates, lower trips back to the emergency department and patient satisfaction is through the roof. We're still in its infancy, it will get better, but I think genie is out of the bottle. And I don't think we have a choice. With the aging population in the United States, there is not enough hospital beds in this country to take care of everybody. We don't have enough money to build them. 
So we either have to ration care in the future, which is absolutely terrible, or we have to look at a new way of healthcare delivery, which this is part of. The model has to change. It's not working now. There's too many people getting older that will need medical care. So we have to change with it. This is one of those solutions. We have to make sure there's guardrails on it. We have to make sure it's safe, high quality, people are doing it for the right reasons. The cost savings that are there get driven back to the patients so they pay less and the health system costs are there to drive down the system as a whole. But in the end, I think it's necessary and I'm very hopeful. And I think both government, insurers, the patients, everybody sees that. Any comment on this, Dr. McInnes? I 100% agree. I think it's a great opportunity for us to pivot. <laughs> so I'm wondering then, uh, would you think the American hospital industry would generally try to make at-home care the standard for most patients going forward? I think they will try, and I think the patients will demand it already. My program is only three years old, and I have patients come back with conditions, and in the emergency room, when they say, we're going to admit you, they say, hold it. Does that mean I'm going home? Because that's what I did last time. Why would I go upstairs if I don't have to? So the patients are actually starting to demand it more. And I think, again, when you see the experience outcomes, the quality outcomes, the reduced mortality and other things that multiple systems, not only our own, it's found, it just makes sense. And you know, hospitals will become high acuity centers for surgery, ICU patients, everything that is lowered that can be treated at home, people will treat at home. I think that really is the future of medicine. Because I was going to ask you this final question here. If we were to meet in five years from now, all of us here together, where would the biggest area of opportunities be relating to wearables and health? So I think you might have answered my question there, but yeah. if you, if there Again, anything else that you can see on the, on the horizon. Like I said, it's not one device, it's multiple devices. The less invasiveness will be there. I think we'll see a revolution in camera technology where as opposed to putting on a blood pressure cuff or a patch to get a heart rate or a blood pressure, you'll hold up your camera and an algorithm will pick up the pulsations in your skin that you can't even see and say, here's your heart rate, here's your pulse ox oxygen level, here's your blood pressure, feed that to a clinician who can make a diagnosis. So opposed to somebody sending you a bunch of devices at your house, you either have your own pick this up and you connect, you know, oh, I have the worst headache in my life. The speaker will connect you to a neurologist or an ED physician. You'll be able to instantaneously get healthcare wherever you're at, as opposed to waiting for an appointment, going to an emergency department, doing the things that we've done for the last hundred years. That'll be gone. Technology will enable it for our patients to have a new access and front, digital front door to health. Before I get to Dr. McGinnis on this last question, though, I, I have to follow up with you, Dr. Maniachi. Most healthcare providers get into the business because of the human interaction, right? Human touch, right? So how is that going to work when really a lot of this is going to be at home care, monitoring, yeah. wearables? It's an interesting question because I asked myself the same thing when I first started this. How can I see somebody but never lay hands on them? So it's really two components. One is there is always an in-person component, be it in the home, a mission, a shelter, wherever the patient's at. There's a nurse, a paramedic, an advanced practice provider, somebody that has to lay hands on somebody and gather biometric data physically off them, not just digitally. So in-home care and touching of the body, examining and figuring out what's going on, that will continue in some sense. But when it comes to the digital providers like myself, I found that I gather more information through a conversation and looking and listening as opposed to the in-depth physical exam. That physical exam, when I made a diagnosis, even in the past in the hospital, was 10%. 50% was a conversation. The other 40% was lab works and radiography and some studies coming back. 
talking to somebody and doing some testing gave me a lot of the information. Physical exam augmented that. It proved what we were looking for. It helped me in some cases. But me sitting down in front of a computer, talking to somebody for a good half hour, 45 minutes, learning about them, how they live their lives, their home, their family, how, what they eat and drink, that has made me a better provider because I understand them and can cater their medical plan to them. And that's really what the patient needs is they want to stay healthy. They don't want to see me once for a hospital stay, get better and then know that they're going to get sick a month from now because nobody did anything in the meantime. So that's really what we're building with this. There will always be an in-home aspect, but that virtual aspect is much more intimate and engaging than I ever thought it would be. All right, Dr. McGinnis, I asked the question of Dr. Maniachi, where will we be in five years from now, do you think? Yeah, I think it was a fantastic response from Dr. Mariachi. To add, I 100% agree with what he said. And to add a little bit too, I think there's an opportunity for these types of technologies to really shift the type of care that we can deliver. We've been thinking a little bit about where these types of technologies may be best applied. And I think one area is in managing, providing patients with information about their episodic conditions. Um, so that may be panic attacks, it may be falls that happen um, occasionally. Sort of providing and empowering patients with that information, I think is really can provide a, a complete shift in how we deliver healthcare and how patients are, are sort of prepared to engage with, with healthcare. So that, that's one area, sort of the sharing of information. Another area I think is in empowering patients who aren't able to describe their healthcare challenges. So we have some studies that are around childhood mental health. Children can't report their own mental health because they can't talk about abstract emotions. And so I think these types of technologies allow us to capture objective information that can speak to those underlying conditions in a way that allows us to deliver the right care at the right time. Hmm. I wonder if, given what you just said about uh, kids and mental health, I wonder if that could also help folks living with dementia who also have Absolutely. trouble expressing yeah. themselves sometimes. Yeah, there's some great work looking in that. And I think that's a, a, another area. Yeah, folks who aren't able to describe their own healthcare challenges. What excites you both about this work, Dr. McGinnis? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's the opportunity to have impact. As a biomedical engineering researcher, a lot of times in academia, you're sort of you can be stuck investigating the next sort of scientific niche. And here, you know, with these types of technologies and the research that we do, I feel like we have a direct pathway to translation where we can actually impact the health of patients. And to me, that's really exciting. Dr. Yeah, for me, it's, you know, it's ownership of the patient. As a hospitalist, I saw you, I didn't know what happened when you came in. You came in, I took care of you, I got you better. You left and I didn't know what happened after you left. Now there's a bit of longitudinal ownership I can have what's going on in your life before, during, and after episode, and making sure you get well during that and stay well. I think that's much more exciting to me than, than the episodic care we're used to in the past. This technology enables that type of digital ownership, right amount of care for the right patient at the right time, so that we can make sure people are on the path to recovery. And that's pretty exciting. And as I mentioned, just learning more about my patients and how they live their lives makes me a better physician, makes me more humble that I don't know everything that's going on, I really need to learn more about them in order to get them better in the long run. This has been a very interesting conversation, gentlemen. I appreciate your work and your time. Thank you so much. Oh, it's Thank been you wonderful. So much. Thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Michael Maniachi. He's a professor of medicine and a hospitalist with Mayo Florida and Jacksonville. He's also the medical director for Mayo's Advanced 
Care at Home program. Dr. Ryan McGinnis has been with us. He's a professor and assistant director in the College of Engineering and Mathematical Sciences at the University of Vermont. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. I'm Kathy Worzer. Until next time, here's to your health and well-being.